1: in a world where podcasts need feedback from their listeners uh-huh. in order to market themselves appropriately okay. to advertisers i'm listening one listener has the power <laughs> to shape the future that listener is
2: you Alright Jake look can, we, you, can you guys just please fill out this listener survey for us It would really mean a lot
1: Accept uh, your destiny <laughs> Take control
2: It's in the info. It's in the description of the podcast itself It'll only take a couple of minutes And it's confidential We'll take no emails or telephone numbers we from you We don't require an email it, You know what it's fine We can just do it <laughs>
1: You have the power. You are the force that will guide us.
2: So once again, just click the link in the show description uh, of this week's episode. You can
1: find it in the podcast app. It's very easy.
2: Okay, we're done here. Thank you so much. And uh, here's this week's episode. Hey, There's what's happened? Well, oh, what? Yeah.
1: The spooky thing. And the guy full of goo. Ooh 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 ooh. Who who you gonna dick? Who you gonna dick deep dick? Who you gonna dick?
2: That's right, guys. It is our episode on Ghostbusters. I when you am your. Oh boy! Here here it comes.
1: Firehouse bed. Okay.
2: Dreaming about all right, I'm Ghost
1: blowjobs, Ghost
2: blowjobs. Oh, the sex scene's so good. Um, yeah. so,
1: is that the word you would describe? I me?
2: love that <laughs> sex scene with the ghosts.
1: Just
2: I love the, that sex scene with the. How, how many, much do you think? How much do you think Dan Aykroyd jerks off to that scene? Okay, I don't even want to talk about it yet because we need I mean, to introduce ourselves. He
1: definitely. Hi there, I am your eye crossing. <laughs> A <laughs> wizard, Jake Young. And I'm your slimy,
2: John Belushi-inspired bruiser, Holden McNeely. And today's episode is actually a Patreon-donated episode. This is an anniversary gift for Jamie, Aaron's wife. Aww. Their anniversary is August 28th, so this is coming out just a couple days after their anniversary. And you know what? I just celebrated my anniversary with my lady love. Oh. And how amazing is that? I forgot and I got her flowers after she reminded me. Oh, you But just... she was very happy about that. You see, this is what you do. You set it up so they have no expectations or very little. So when you do something very small and easy like get flowers, they fucking flip out. Just everybody should treat everyone else like that. Anyways, um, the episode uh, uh, will be dropping just a couple days after their anniversary. Her favorite Ghostbusters podcast, because this is, you know, to promote something, because they get a promotion as well. Her favorite Ghostbusters podcast is Yes, Have Some. So check that out. And I'm going to tell you this right now. This is most definitely going to be a two-parter. Today, we'll be discussing only the first film. And then next week, we'll do Ghostbusters 2. Uh, we're going to do the- The um, the car- real Ghostbusters. The cartoon
1: show. The I'm re- sorry, I'm sorry. Slimer and the real Ghostbusters. Ha.
2: And the reboot, uh, I, which I need to see. I'm, I'm interested to watch that. Oh, the, that the is going The all-female reboot. Yes. We'll be discussing all of those things next week. So stick with us on that. Anywho, let's get this go-
1: going. You know, Ernie Hudson tried out for the role of- <laughs> He tried out for his own role and he didn't get it right they gave to
2: our hall we'll talk about it later we'll talk about it later Mm. uh that's next week so uh anywho what was i just about to say i was just about to say why don't we start it off with our personal experiences of course i love the ghostbusters so much that my good friend henry obviously i picked him to be my very good friend because he he is slimer essentially (laughs) um I you know what it is with Ghostbusters? I feel like I remember Ghostbusters 2 coming out, but mm-hmm. of course I re- I don't have any memory of Ghostbusters 1 coming out cuz it was only a couple years after I was born. So for me, Ghostbusters was that thing that like always existed. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it was always around, it was just there, like the logo and everything was just there. I don't know if I saw the first movie I didn't see the first movie for quite some time, but I remember the sequel. I probably saw the sequel first, and I remember the cartoon, and I had the action figures, which were really cool because they had like proton packs of these little plastic like um, the the laser. What what do you call the the what shoots out of the gun? Oh, I I mean Whatever. the Proton beam. Yeah, yeah. The, the beam. It had like a plastic beam kind of thing, and it was really neat, and I really loved it. Um, but yeah, to me, it was like not a movie; it was a franchise. Like Mm -hmm. always,
1: you know, Uh, that's actually one of the big things that kind of uh, kind of tanked the franchise or not tanked. But uh, it's what made Ghostbusters 2 such a weird, tense thing was Uh for most of the like the Ghostbusters fan base were like mostly kids that were kind of brought on with the idea of uh, fighting monsters with lasers. And uh, even as a kid, I remember like watching the first movie and being a little bit disappointed that it wasn't more like the cartoon because the movie is it's a lot of like grown-ups just kind of like flirting you know like how how on earth is a seven-year-old supposed to like really understand the sexual fireworks between bill murray and sigourney weaver mm-hmm. like uh you know at what point are we supposed to like understand an epa uh regulation <laughs> dispute like we're not you know kids aren't supposed to be like ah, oh, that's a con ed truck i know what that means right um but they're like the movie just was so iconic and just did like it just the very idea of the special effects driven comedy the action comedy bringing back the horror comedy from basically the grave spooky um you know it did so much and it's why now it stands as one of the most like infinitely rewatchable movies of all time like uh there's gonna be no one on earth that like hates the movie Ghostbusters unless they were like physically beaten it's with so, a VHS
2: copy of it whenever they were naughty. It's so difficult to imagine not liking the movie. It's so good. It's so funny. It's so um it's so scary. The special effects are awesome. The everyone in it is charming. Everyone in it is amazing. There's literally not uh every single scene it feels like a classic memorable scene you know there's literally just nothing in it that doesn't belong the ghost
1: blowjob really comes out of that field i
2: love the ghost blowjob and if you say another disparaging thing about the ghost blowjob it's a dream sequence it's just gonna be called the wizard because i'm gonna leave this podcast if you say another thing about the ghost blowjob being bad because i love it and i love and i love you and i i hate that i'm doing this to you right now because i do love you jake young and we're looking you're you're looking in my eyes and i love you but I will freak out and I will burn this building to the ground. If you say another disparaging comment about the awesome fucking ghost blowjob scene that is the best scene in the movie.
1: How many special effects artists do you think had to unbuckle Dan Aykroyd's pants? You know
2: what? That sounds disparaging but it, in the tone, but it's not technically, so I'll let it slide. Maybe four. Who knows? <laughs> One puppeteer. They got Jean Gigi, the famous puppeteer from fucking France, and he did it. All right, we have to delineate. That was not fact. Because we're, we're it's a show where we say facts, so we should really stick with it. Look, with this whole thing, Ghostbusters started from the mind of one man. If it weren't for this one man, none of this would exist. And of course, that is Dan Aykroyd. We all know now. I feel like, if, if you, especially if you're a listener who also enjoys last podcast on the left and things like that, like is already pro- probably pretty aware of Dan Aykroyd's like love of the um of the unknown of the spooky UFOs, ghosts. Atlantis. Um, Dan Aykroyd, of course, the hilarious. I mean, again, who doesn't love Dan? Like, is it possible to not love Dan Aykroyd? Uh,
1: investors of the Crystal Head uh, Skull Vodka Company. Did it go under? No, no, I'm just. Making I bet that. they're loving life. It's a successful <laughs> vodka company, right? I, I, does it still exist? I think so. Good. For, uh, you know what? I'd we'll take go to a back. liquor
2: store after this, and we'll buy some, and we'll get drunk in the street. <laughs> <That's> to uh... <laughs> Jake, you're locked
1: in with me now, buddy. For the rest of the night, my name is Slimer. <laughs>
2: So anyways, Dan Aykroyd, born on July 1st or Canada Day in 1952 in Ontario. Um, until set until the age of 17, he intended to be a priest as he was raised in the Catholic Church. I already mentioned Henry before. There's also Sam Kinison. A lot of these comics, they start out devout, super religious, and totally ready to go into the priesthood. And then they go pull a full 180 and become like these comedy legends, you know?
1: Oh, I can enthrall masses and fuck?
2: yeah <laughs> i think exactly. i this right i think i'll go this round. and do drugs and all that fun stuff so he was going to be a priest and he ends up dropping out of college later on um and uh ends up working as a comic in canadian nightclubs and also ran an after-hour speakeasy called club 505 in toronto and of course i
1: had no idea about i didn't this. know about that but i
2: did know you know he opened up a bl- the blues club f- for after hours in new york for snl for the after party Mm. so i did know that so he he must have learned how to run a club here and then was like when he was a hot shot on snl was like i'm fucking open up a club (laughs) in new york fuck it so um he got his first gig as a cast member of a short-lived Canadian sketch show called The Heart and Lorne Terrific Hour. And that was with, of course, Lorne Michaels. And that's what his connection to getting out um, of Second City because he was a second city in Toronto and Chicago in the mid-70s. And then he got his big break, of course, with Saturday Night Live as an original cast member. He was paid $278 a week as a writer on the show when it first started. And it, but he ended up being a performer before. The, by the time the show premiered he was already upgraded to performer and i can't believe he was hired as just a writer when you think about it because his performance his impressions so his energy is just so great you know rewatching old snl um is really bad uh it's not very good like old 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 snl because it's a template they're figuring it out mm-hmm. they're like you know it it it's more about like what, how they paved the way for late night comedy. It can't and, and be for, all
1: fast-o-matic. Yeah, and and yeah,
2: but that's the thing. But when you rewatch it, definitely the standout, in my opinion, is is Aykroyd Like he is just timelessly funny. There's just something about him. I I just love it. Um, so he meets John Belushi. Uh, at SNL, they create the Blues Brothers together. Um, uh, and you know he ends up really writing Ghostbusters. Uh, f- as a vehicle for him and Belushi. But wait, 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 because I skipped past some shit. Did you read about the spiritualism movement that he was involved in? And his father, his grandfather. He
1: comes from a whole, like, he comes from a like prestigious line of wackadoos. Yeah, dude, I love it. I wish. I kind of wish I had that.
2: Uh, you was know, his
1: grandfather or his dad the radio engineer? His
2: grandfather was the radio engineer who tried to speak with ghosts through radio waves. <laughs> and uh, his father wrote a book about ghosts, um, a history of ghosts. And he wrote the introduction for his father's book. It is a 2009 book. I might have to read it. That would probably be great. Um, uh, He said about his being a spiritualist, I'm a spiritualist, a proud wearer of the spiritualist badge. Mediums and psychic research have gone on for many, many years. Loads of people have seen spirits, heard a voice, or felt the cold temperature. I believe that they are between here and there, that they exist between the fourth and fifth dimension, and that they visit us frequently um so yeah yeah uh very Specific- interesting and stuff. it's
1: important to point out specifically spiritualism which was like a movement in the uh, you know across europe and the americas where it was like mesmerism and seances yeah. and you know kind of like the ouija they board did a lot era. of se- they
2: did a lot of seances him and his family it was like a big yeah they it was a big thing like they were deep they were in um and so i think this was just him putting two loves together being a ghost lover and being in comedy and and he you know he'd already had has had some success so at this point he could write something as insane as what this first quote-unquote script that he wrote sounds like and have people actually be like yeah i think we and have like very good director you know directors and and, uh uh producers be like okay i think we've got something in here somewhere whereas you know if this is the beginning of his career there's no way he would have gotten away with this it's insane what he wrote he wrote he was at his family farm family farmhouse And he reads an article in a parapsychology journal. Uh, And I thought, he said, I'll devise a system to trap ghosts and marry it to the old ghost films of the 1930s. Virtually every comedy team did a ghost movie. Abbott and Costello, Bob Hope. I was a big fan of them. One of the big influences of spook busters. Jake, you've raised your hand. You would like to say something.
1: Oh, uh, (laughs) this was something that I actually was not aware of. Uh, But, you know, Bob Hope was in a movie based on a very popular play. Called the Ghost Breakers, and yes. there was another famous movie called The Ghost Chasers, yes. and like Abdon Costello kind of launched uh, entire careers doing stuff like Abdon Costello meets Frankenstein, meet the werewolf, meet the mummy. So like the idea of like these comical takes on you know bumbling spiritualists was pretty much a vibrant genre that just had kind of fallen by the wayside. It yes. was kind of like um, kind of like all the other <laughs> Universal monsters was were kind of just by this point by the 80 by the late 70s early 80s was just kind of this hokey thing that really wasn't given any seriousness yeah, and was it, way overdue yeah. for a revamp for kind of someone to take that uh kind of uh uh, taking what we're scared of and kind of mocking it taking the authority of so-called spiritualists and kind of twisting it on its head
2: and it makes sense because we're talking about an era of physical comedy mm. and I think that if you put a monster in a room with a comedy guy it's all about his facial expressions he has to run away from it he's gonna trip and fall you know and I think it really served like putting monsters in comedies back then really uh, you served know, them you know more. what's
1: so funny is when uh, one character doesn't see the monster right. and one character does you're, you're and right. then he's like, and then the guy's like, "What is it, you, mo- you, you Maloon? What? A- yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, cat's got your tongue. What's the matter with you? Yu- 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 so, yeah, yeah, it's totally. literally the height of that's the, the funniest thing.
2: Jake, I just realized what you're calling should have been, but you were born too late for it.
1: I someday I will. You're
2: really good at the gig, gig, gig.
1: It's a It's a ba ba whoa What's a ghost? You know what I mean? Literally, my favorite dumb joke to do is to just be like, "It's a go 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 <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah,
2: the did you come
1: up with that or did someone I mean, tell you I that don't, it's just very funny to do
2: so it also was uh the disney animated short the lonesome ghosts or just lonesome ghosts in which mickey goofy and donald are hired to get rid of four ghosts from a haunted house um and goofy actually says the line i ain't scared of no ghosts that's very funny yeah so actually it did come directly from that i'm also going to say this right now was it vanity fair we need to look this up. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: I pulled a lot from
2: a uh, Ghostbusters article. Yeah, Vanity Fair. The Making of Ghostbusters, How Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis, and um, the Hurricane hurric- the <laughs> built the perfect comedy. I pulled a lot from that Vanity Fair article. So, first of all, shout-outs to that for making my life easier research-wise. And also, just go read it after this if you want to learn more. It is very it is a great article about the making of it. Um, uh, so, anyways, back to where we were, which is when around when... Um, Uh, Now, Dan Eckroyd's been inspired. He's got family, you know, this family history and everything. And he's working on this script about, you know, kind of based on all of that. Um, And he was writing a line for John. He said, I was writing a line for John, John Belushi. And Bernie Brillstein called and said they just found him. It was a Kennedy moment. Uh, we loved each other as brothers, and he was devastated. And um that Wait, John part, Belushi died. John Belushi died of a drug overdose. Oh my God. yes, he was very reckless. What? He was very reckless. Not John Belushi. yes, jump j b. Wow, not BJ, which is fun.
1: That's hilarious.
2: Uh, so he ends up giving the part to Bill Murray um, and he kept moving forward with it he ends up Bernie Brillstein was actually the first person to see the script that was his manager um, Bernie Brillstein is kind of a very well known comedy comedy sort of figure um, in terms of the business of comedy he's kind of been around for a lot of stuff um, so anyways he it, it was more like a treatment at this point it was like 60 pages of plot outline, scene sketches some dialogue he sees some potential in it and he said Symbolically purchases the script for $1 so that he could represent Aykroyd in negotiations. Now,
1: have you heard anything about this legendary first draft, this like proto? It sounds fucking crazy. I'm
2: kind of shocked that people read it and were like, yeah, I could see. You know, like, like let's move forward. You know what I mean? Because it's so nuts. It's interdimensional. There are it's competing for, number one, It Takes place in the future. Yes, it like, takes place in the future. Like immediately, like it's time. Tra- well, it's time travel in general. Mm-hmm. They're traveling through time. There's giant ghosts like all over the place. The like Stay
1: Puff Marshmallow Man was, was already a
2: part of it. That was one of the things that stayed. Um, they wore like SWAT
1: like outfits. Yeah, um, those like kind they, of visors with the like basically riot cops and
2: wands. They had wands that they used instead of the proton packs and all that kind of stuff. Uh, one,
1: uh, one part of it that I, I read about that sounds particularly fascinating is that once they have captured a ghost instead of like a containment unit, they are banished to an abandoned Sunoco gas station in New yes. Jersey. Yes. Yeah. Yep. That as well. Uh, they visit a weird purgatory where all famous ghosts live. Um, and yeah, it's just, which is weird because when people like kind of talk about the Ghostbusters and like it's raw appeal, it's usually the idea that they take what should be, what has always been kind of this like mysterious and like kind of, uh, you know, if, you're, if you buy into it, this like high level uh, uh, job of the spiritualist and kind of bring it back down to kind of a working man's profession. Mm-hmm. You know, make more akin to an exterminator or a firefighter rather than like a guy in a neckerchief who talks like Vincent Price. <laughs> um,
2: yeah, it, it it really was, and and it really is thanks to um, the next character in our tale for why this movie wasn't a massive fucking failure or. They probably never would have probably would have a, never been unfilmable. made yeah because it was completely unfilmable this script and um so they go to ivan reitman he uh ivan reitman uh is hear a, me out
1: another fucking canadian
2: yes another well a canadian but also a refugee Slo- slovakia born in 1946 to a mother who survived auschwitz and a father who was an underground resistance fighter they soon became canadian refugees in 1950. So like, just a few years after he was born, they fled. Um, so he starts out as a producer uh, for CITY TV or CITY TV in Toronto and actually meets Dan Aykroyd back then. Dan Aykroyd was a young announcer for for the TV network and or TV channel. And so um, they actually me- kind of brushed hooves then. But then um, he-, he goes on to kind of make his way um, uh, uh, at producing the stage production of the hit musical Spellbound in the early 70s then he goes on to produce two Cronenberg films a movie called Shivers and a movie called Rabbit but his big break came and the the reason why he is on fire when they introduced this idea to him essentially in Hollywood he produced Animal House and directed Meatballs in 1978 and 79 fun summer sex comedies essentially Animal House of course is incredible I'm sure it'll get its own episode one of these days and uh, ends up uh, directing Bill Murray in Stripes after that so he's hot He's hot on in terms of a comedy director, and so Dan Aykroyd approaches him. They have uh, he sends him the script, the quote unquote again script, um, and uh, uh, Ivan Reitman sits down to him and says, "Hey, look, this is uh, completely impossible to to make, but there's a lot of good ideas in it." Essentially, is what he said, um, and so he kind of he 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 kind of throws down all this stuff to ackroyd uh like hey if we could just play this thing realistically from the beginning we'd believe that the marshmallow man could exist by the end of the film uh he said i basically pitched what is now the movie that the ghostbusters should go into business this was the beginning the uh, this was the beginning of the 1980s uh everyone was going into business uh reitman um, also said the biggest leap for me was the concept of the marshmallow man which we took from Aykroyd's original treatment it was one of the many elaborate creatures in his treatment but there was just something special about it that tickled me but over the course of the writing it was always the thing i was the most worried about um, we're dealing in rel- up, up up to that point we're dealing in relatively believable storytelling but a 110 foot marshmallow man walking down central park west that's something else. He says all of this stuff, though. He's like, okay, fine. You know, we'll keep the marshmallow man, but let's make it realistic. Let's have them going into business. Let's set it in like a real city, not in, not on Xenar or whatever the fuck it was. And so, uh, you know, Dan Aykroyd, and, and, and hey, kudos to him on this part, too. And by the way, if you're out there and you're a writer, this, this, uh, this next bit, listen to this next fucking bit, okay? D- Dan Aykroyd says, cool. Yeah, <laughs> let's do it. And, re- and receives his notes. This is like the number one amateur writer move, by the way. I have dealt with so many times. Can you give me feedback on this thing? Uh-huh. Okay. Um, the first page, you could probably just lose like half of it. It's really unnecessary. Yeah, well, it's there because of uh, it. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. And they fucking argue with you on it. That is such an amateur <laughs> move. And I love what Ackroyd does here. He says, okay, Cool. We'll make it work. Let's do it because he wants it to get made, and he wants to work with good people who know what the fuck they're doing. And I think I really loved that—that that he was totally willing to gut his. I mean, they gutted yeah. that script hard. They gutted that script. Um, but he says, "Yeah." You and keep calling it a script when I really consider it is a treat, yeah, it's of a of dreams, dreamscapes. I, they keep referring to it as a script. I'm like, this is not a script. It is picture. It was there literally are sketches. In it, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe I just need to do that uh, more so. So anyways, from there, they literally go from lunch. They go straight to Harold Ramis's office. And um, it was in, in his office. He essentially just thumbed through the script while they pitched the idea Harold to Ramis, him. Harold another fucking Canadian. Another Canadian. And he says... I'm in, just based off of all of that. So now they have Harold Ramis, Ivan Reitman, and Dan Aykroyd together. Like, let's get this made. They from there go not direct, not all in one day. They did go from lunch to apparently yeah. to Harold Ramis' office, but then on a different day they end up going to Columbia Pictures and pitch the idea to Chairman of Columbia P- Pictures, Frank Price very important person in this movie he's really the champion of this story in a lot of ways just remember the name Frank Price it'll come in handy later for 25 million dollars essentially and other other quotes I saw was 30 million but either way he was like how much do you need to get it made and he thought to to himself Ivan Reitman did well it will be like three times the amount of money it, it costs to make stripes so he just said 30 million right 25 million 30 million not sure exactly and Frank Price to his credit Uh, what was very unproduced,
1: very un studio, studio head of him and said, okay, well, this (laughs) is where he was very studio head. Uh He said, okay, I need it by June, 1984. And it was May, 1983. So yeah, no, no finished script. Yeah. No special, no special effects lined up. Nothing. Not even, uh, they did have a, they did have Bill Murray attached. Yes. by this point.
2: I believe so, right? They had did Bill they? Murray. Attached. No, no, but they never fully had that. That's the thing about Bill Murray in general that you never know, fully know if you have Bill Murray. Mm. And they did not. It was literally not until like the first day of shooting that they were like, okay, he's definitely going to do it because he showed up and he's in a costume and he's saying his line. Like li- like that's apparently the thing about Bill Murray. He like never fully commits.
1: Well, the bugaboo with this is that uh, Frank Price also greenlit a uh, dr- uh Bill Murray's like kind yes. of dramatic turn in the movie Razor's Edge. Have which you seen he, that? I never saw it. Um, I didn't even
2: know it existed. To be honest, I with only
1: me. know about it from doing research and like watching interviews where he was talking about both movies because those were his things at the time. Uh-huh. So like a high a high drama like a high dramatic turn by a like famous but not bankable actor. Um, you know, kind of like was his, you know, one for me, one for you to get that made. So uh-huh. Ghostbusters kind of like guaranteed. Right. Or I'm sorry. Razor's Edge kind of guaranteed that like he wasn't going to balk on Ghostbusters.
2: Right, right, right. So they did have a little bit more of a commitment. But it is funny. I saw different. I don't I didn't pull a quote about it, but there were multiple quotes just being like, you just never know with him. Yeah. Oh, uh, the Murricane. The Murricane. Exactly right. So anyway, so Aykroyd, By um, the can I
1: Just side note. Uh, Every time now, I read about like how like Bill Murray like lived during the height of his power, yeah. and even like today, even today, uh, it's something that like I think is cool because Bill Murray did it. But if I read about a YouTuber doing it yesterday, I'd be like, "What a piece of shit!" Yeah, that's that's a good fucking point, <laughs> like, man. If you replace Bill Murray's name with like Logan Paul in uh-huh. any story about Bill Murray, you'd yeah. be like, "What a fucking asshole!" It's like Garfield <laughs> minus Garfield,
2: except for. Bill Murray minus Bill Murray Murray plus Logan Paul. (laughs) That's kind of incredible. People should start to, I bet that'll become a meme if people start doing it. I should actually,
1: fuck it. No, I I call
2: rights. Yeah, yeah. Do it on dorkly. Oh, that would be funny. Do we have to cut this part? No, no, no. <laughs> you should because it's true because if you did replace Logan Paul with anything Bill Murray did, like, it Bill would immediately Murray,
1: uh, be the worst. Came back from overseas to start uh to you know to start uh, shooting uh, Ghostbusters and like they uh Wrightman met him at the airport and he was apparently walking around with a bullhorn just making yes. announcements to everyone. Yeah, they had to like
2: grab him and just like yank him out of there. But be- this is go this is that's too far. We like got to go back to Martha's Vineyard, which is where the the at the three went yeah that's when they went to go actually write the script they literally wrote all day all night apparently they would write like separately during the day then have like a family dinner because their families were with them and then at night they would get together and look at everything pitch ideas write stuff together yeah exactly um uh, and and actually i had a great quote that i want to say right now um because i do love what Ackroyd says because i've actually in my in writing circles again not to compare myself to these Geniuses, you but,
1: the both are very talented sketch actors well, and you. writers. But, I will, I'm. Oh, no, you please, don't I can't
2: show. even compare myself to Dan Aykroyd. But but he said, look up
1: "Murder for Sketches" on YouTube. They need more views.
2: Damn it, <laughs> Dan Aykroyd though did actually have a great quote that reminded me of my dynamics that I've had with writing circles. Like I always tell people, I'm the premise guy. Henry's the character guy. Ed's the joke guy. Right? Mm-hmm. If it was, if it's the three of us writing, like that's the trifecta, and you want to find people who balance you out. Well, Dan Aykroyd says I'm a better originator than. Ek- executor of a finished screenplay i'm a kitchen sink writer i throw everything in there i've always relied on a collaborator to bring it into reality and so it's very important a to have collaboration but also to understand what your strengths are and what you need to balance you out and so that's why he needed um ramus and reitman uh ramus says dan's great at creating funny situations whereas my strength is more in the area of of strong jokes and funny dialogue essentially we wrote separately and then rewrote each other so there you go um Reitman said of this time at Martha's Vineyard, "Uh, they were two of the greatest weeks of my life. We worked seven days a week, had wonderful meals with our families and then went right back to work. He just loved it. And that sounds amazing. And I can see how that's amazing. I need to do more writing retreats. I think that I, I've always wanted to do that, like go to a cabin with a couple of friends and fucking just write a screenplay, you know, for for like a week or two. Um, pretty rad. I, I really want to do that. I think that that's what I'm missing in my life creatively. But anyway. There used anyways. to be a
1: thing in New York where uh, it was like a monthly challenge to write a pilot script mm. and you would get randomly paired off with other comedians in the circle. And that was like incredibly rewarding. Mm. Um, uh the so let's get to some fun casting stories yes yeah, so now
2: we move on to the casting they have a final script they crushed it knocked it out of the park it's now where it, where it much more like the script we, we uh, uh, see the film version of today um, and so uh, one of the first ones that they needed was uh, they needed to audition the essentially the Margaret Dumont of the film um, Margaret Dumont was the foil to Groucho Marx in the March Brothers films what's
1: the character's name? Sigourney Weaver's character? yes
2: uh, Dana Dana Dana. So, there is no Dana Only Zul Only Zul Right uh, So anyways Sigourney Weaver First actually Apparently Julia Roberts Came in mm-hmm. And wowed everybody In the room When she walked out Of the room They were like She's gonna be A huge star This this woman's fantastic But then right after Her walked in Sigourney Weaver And Sigourney she, Weaver Wanted this part Bad Wanted it bad And she came up With the idea That the, she would be Possessed by the dog That was her idea In the audition room She actually pitched that and she said, I had to audition for Ivan. She did her best impression of the terror dog that it was her idea would possess her in the film. She said, I remember starting to growl and bark and gnaw on the cushions and jump around. Ivan cut the tape and said, don't ever do that again, (laughs) which I love that story. Um, But it was also her idea. uh, It was also Sigourney Weaver's idea. I hope I'm right about the dog thing. I'm pretty sure I'm right. I think I read that in a separate article, but I'm pretty sure she came up with the idea that the dog would actually possess her. And it wasn't a script at first, but I could be wrong, so don't hate me on that. But I do know that it was her idea for sure that she would be a musician, which is a beautiful touch. Because, um, and as in Weaver's words, she says she could be kind of uptight and a bit strict, but you know she has a soul because she plays the cello. And that's such a smart touch because you are it's true. It softens her. It makes her... More, it just ground. It, it, it she's it, so grounded that it kind of it lightens her up a little bit. It makes her a little. That's what she, the character, really well, needs. It's, it,
1: it uh, contrasts the uh, weird blue collarness of the Ghostbusters, even though the Ghostbusters themselves are like all doctors in acad- for Columbia University, uh-huh. but they're outcasts from academia, so they get bumped down to blue collar. Except for Winston, who is blue, co- I mean, it's complicated. The themes are complicated. Yes. Uh, but in Ghostbusters 2, she's a paint, uh, res- a painting restoration specialist. Yes. Because it doesn't matter what her thing is, she just has to be a fancy culture lady who lives in a nice park, uh, Central Park uh, apartment. Right. Um. Funny. Uh. Weird side note. Um. The I actually one of my favorite scenes in the movie is uh when uh. Dana and Venkman are kind of flirting in the middle of Lincoln Center because obviously she's hanging out at Lincoln Center. She's a professional fancy lady. Um, That entire scene had to be ADR'd and looped after the fact because Lincoln Center refused to turn off the fountains that they were standing next to and they couldn't get clean dialogue.
2: (laughs) Interesting. Um, So uh, next on the on the chopping block next on the casting block rather was uh the nerdy Louis Tolly L- Louis Louis Louis, Louis Tolly um, and it was first, uh, John Candy was the first, he was, it was actually written for him, but for some reason, in early just,
1: storyboards, it's John Candy as that character, but for some reason, he just couldn't figure the part. He just
2: didn't, maybe he just didn't want to be a nerd or something, but uh, it,
1: he had been, he had recently bad taken on a lot of these kind of like gotcha. nerdy, sincere kind of like side guy characters. Yes. Yeah, so and he wanted
2: to be a badass. He, uh, Reitman said, oh, yeah. Candy said, I don't know about this. I could do it, but I should do it with a German accent. He wanted to be flanked by two big dogs. I said, I'm sorry, John. Maybe next time. And uh, and then apparently Rick Moranis called him um, 12, ou- 12 hours after the script was sent to him. He said, Rick called me back uh, in 12 hours, I'm mean, said, and said, thank God Candy hates it. This is the greatest script I've ever read.
1: Uh can we talk about how good Rick Moranis is in I this movie I
2: love him in every, everything he's great and he's the best in everything but like he's so much he's so good
1: he's so much more than just like the uh, ineffectual nerd in this movie he has like yeah. his own weird swagger about himself yeah. when he has that like house party he's like party. a confident nerd in a weird way he's just like is living his life as he sees fit yeah. with, that, like, with like no real shame yeah it's very it's captivating he and he delivers it so, well. so yeah it's really just genuinely good he's so funny um that's It's honestly, like watching it now as an adult, like for the millionth time over, it's always Rick Moranis' performance. And I'm always just like, yeah, there are so many like micro choices he is making Mm -hmm. in every scene that I'm just like about. It's it's so good. It's so good. But
2: what's not good is they don't have a black Ghostbuster yet. And that's not good. So they start going looking for that. (laughs) Um, uh, Reitman says this about Ernie Hudson. Ernie Hudson had this wonderful, likable, kind of naive quality, and I just cast him. But Ernie does uh, recall it being a much more rigorous audition process where he had to keep going back in and back in and back in. Um, And apparently his role was a lot bigger in the original script. He had a much bigger backstory, a lot more going on. And apparently it was like right before... Right before uh, they started shooting, he got like a revised script where like all of that was hacked out of it he and was, he was super bummed out. The way out.
1: I understand it, the character was supposed to actually have like a uh, military background in like demolitions and like uh, saboteur and like all these. Like The idea was the juxtaposition was going to be that uh, like while well, these guys were just kind of like slacker schmoes, uh, uh, Ernie Hudson's character was going to be like hyper professional and hyper vigilant and uh-huh. that was going to be uh the kind of um the the like the, the comic tension between them um and it would be more it would be you know the way that like a traditional military focused person would approach the threat of ghosts versus how the enlightened groovy dudes uh kind of handled it would have been it but that would have like been way more um you know, that just would have been more time that they couldn't dedicate to Bill Murray uh goofing around trying to impress Sigourney Weaver. Right. So it didn't make it. And the fact is that they this is like one of the unique things about the Ghostbusters script is they needed a character who didn't know the mechanics of how ghosts worked in this world so that he, Yeah. so uh, they could actually explain it, mm-hmm. which works because in theory, like Ghostbusters isn't exactly an origin movie. Mm-hmm. Like all these characters... Already know that ghosts are real and already developed all the technology. Like they, you know, they Tony Stark has already left the cave by the time the movie starts.
2: You kind of have Bill Murray too, though, because he's he's like a bullshit artist, so he doesn't really know what's going on. You know what I mean? Like
1: that's like a weird inconsistent thing in his character because he's like treats them all like oh whatever. And then like um But he also but then there's the stuff in the library. Uh-huh. Uh True. And, but then when you see Slimer for the first time, he's still like which right. but like it's yeah, it's huh. it's kinda that's the we'll get we'll get into our thoughts on the movie itself. But Yes,
2: yes, yes. So anyways, um Ernie had this to say um about his uh, about his uh, slight disappointment. I love the character and he's got some great lines, but I felt the guy was just kind of there. I love the movie, I love the guys. I'm very thankful to Ivan for casting me. I'm very thankful that fans appreciate the Winston character, but it's always been very frustrating. Kind of a love-hate thing, I guess. So that's cool, and again, notice he gives the shout out. He makes sure, you know, to let everyone know. I think that was a classy way to kind of state how he felt. Uh,
1: One time I was working an event for a charity that I was interning at, and it was my job to be the kind of liaison, the guest kind of uh, attendant uh, for Ernie Hudson, who is one of our celebrity VIPs. And uh, I basically just followed him around while he just smoked outside of the hotel. And uh, I want he was a class act all the way. Oh, cool. I told him I was a big fan of his character in Oz because I was smart enough to not be another fat nerd that was like, Oh ghost <laughs> What's Slimer like in real life? Um,
2: I hope you can tell me offhand the actress who plays the secretary.
1: Uh, that's Annie Potts
2: yes and she has a musical background um so for her this was an interesting project because of course this is such an improv based uh shooting scenario for her you know performance scenario for her well but she was fantastic in the movie well
1: this is uh just uh just quick anecdote Annie Potts uh the character Janine mm-hmm. um, I think God, I hope it's Janine. I we don't have internet I don't have internet down here, so my usual While you're t- telling
2: this anecdote, I will look this up. My again.
1: usual tactic of quickly looking up stuff <laughs> so I don't sound like an ignorant ass. Um, but uh the Annie Potts uh shows up on her first day, literally right as they're about to film her first scene, and she doesn't really have time to get into costume or kind of get into character. So in like this weird panicked state, she actually grabs the glasses off of her uh costume uh dresser's face. And puts them on and starts like doing the character of this, like, huh. kind of sassy yet like uh shy uh secretary. And she has to wear them for the rest of the shoot. Well, like, literally, her you know, her costume. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I should know the correct term for the person who like makes sure the costumes are, are who manages the costumes, but uh. Has to like constantly be following her, making sure that like she can get her fucking glasses back as soon as she's done (laughs) shooting. And because they were prescription lenses, she was getting horrible headaches during the shoot. Oh my
2: God. Um, And she was, uh, yes, Janine Melnitz.
1: Okay. Hello, Jake. What? Do you know who I am? Oh, it's such a booming voice. I'm New York City. Oh, why is your rent so high? Did you know that I'm... Don't worry about that. Did you know that I'm a character in this movie? Uh, I mean, it, it's, it was... Especially for a movie that took place in the 80s, I gotta say, they made you look real good. I'm a character in this movie. And I'm big and have many buildings. <laughs> <laughs> well, get out of here, New
2: York City, all right? it's too. right? You're too big for this room, okay? We already have two fat guys in it. Um. So, anyway, I'm sorry. That, did you get upset with me saying that? No, no. I no. called myself fat as well. I'm fine. <laughs> All right. Anyways, um. so New York City. Now, okay. Of, of course, now everybody's just like, yeah, every fucking thing shot in New York. It's fucking New York. You know? Shut up, Holden. <laughs> you suck. What? Or like, whatever. Be People kind. say that. People think about that. I'm sorry. I'm punchy today. I'm hungover, guys. I'm going to oh, throw it out there. I'm hungover, I'm punchy. I'm sorry to Jake, my friend, for being negative to myself, for being negative to him, for being negative to my listeners. Can I
1: talk to New York again?
2: Hello, Jake.
1: I. you should elect Cynthia Nixon. Okay. Yay. <laughs> <You're not sweet. laughs>
2: Thank you, New York City. Have a good one, buddy. So but I'll break you, <laughs> just like I break everyone. <laughs> Oh, yeah, you can. You, by the way, you can't just call yourself a New Yorker if you've been here for just a year. <laughs> Thank you, New York City. I appreciate you saying that because I need people to hear that. I do. <laughs> they need to hear that. Anyways, um, <laughs> anyways, uh, what was I going to say? I was going to say that at this time, New York was really kind of looked down on. New York was vi- like everybody, you know, there was kind of a massive fleeing entertainment wise from New York to L.A., New York, where kind of film really kind of began, was kind of going away. Obviously, in the seventies and the early eighties, it was kind of a shit show, filthy, fucked up, you know. And roving
1: bands of themed gangs controlling territories, hafting,
2: literally having to leave your apartment with mug money that you had in your pocket to give to a mugger, just just like insurance almost, um, where you have the real money like in your shoe or whatever. Mm-hmm. Anyways, it was a bad scene in a way. SNL really was what brought, like, the entertainment industry in a big way back to the city and made people want to kind of get back to it. And then Ghostbusters, in an even much bigger way, really sh- showed New York in a way that was incredibly appealing and in a way that New York needed. During this time, it was, it was, and so yes, New York is definitely a major character in this film. And at a time when New York kind of they, you know, New York was not in the
1: best light, it was actually, uh, the I believe if I get if I have my timeline right, please correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, basically, the first four weeks of shooting took place in New York where they had to get all like kind of the outside shots, you know, uh, the Ghostbusters running down Madison Avenue. Uh, the stuff at the Schwartzman library near Bryant Park the stuff at Columbia um all the scenes of uh ecto 1 kind of like tearing ass across the street uh out you know the the crowd scene outside of um uh central park west 55 i believe mm. I, it's the of evo shandor's mysterious building um mm-hmm. the uh so this actually caused a lot of raucous because people yeah. didn't really shoot major movies in the streets of New York. <laughs> the Isaac Asimov story. Oh, well. Okay, okay, okay. So basically I loved it. the initial hubbub is like basically you know word got out that there was this cool movie being produced uh in New York and wherever they went people like you know it caused a lot of buzz and that I think really did help the movie that this city with millions of people in it uh, kind of we're, we're, we're excited about this upcoming film starring Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd. Uh The crowd scene outside of, you know, the, the big set piece where like the asphalt's tearing and all that, uh, they needed to shut down several major streets yes, for this. Yes, yes. Caused one of the world's like, and they had to do it around rush hour oh. on a weekday oh. and shut down entire streets. People were close to riding. The cops were pulling their guns on nearby cars that were trying to break through the barricades. Oh my God. Um, And famously- Isaac, grandfather of the golden age of science fiction. I I mean,
2: you probably already you could probably put this two and two together. But like Dan Aykroyd loves sci fi, loves UFOs, loves you know all that kind of stuff, ghosts and everything. Sees like one of his gods, Isaac Asimov, this incredibly huge hero of science fiction all that good stuff approaches him on the street. Is just like, Oh my God, I'm your biggest fan. And I don't know his exact thing that he said, but Isaac Mavnov's was just like, are you the reason why all these fucking streets are shut down? And he was like, yeah. And he was just like, you're a, ba-. I don't know what he said. Yeah. I forget what the exact quote is, but he just, he just you're he said, a shanda. Yes. Yeah, in so many words, he tells him to fuck off essentially and, and walks away. It was kind of amazing. That's, that's, uh, what, that's, that's like my experiences. I watching feel like. the
1: movie now, it's actually kind of fascinating to see how like kind of on point, Ivan Reitman was to get the shooting schedule because there's entire scenes where like they'll be outside in New York City and then inside on a studio lot and then outside in New York City. And then in a like uh, the hotel where they fight Mm. Slimer is the Biltmore Hotel in uh, Los Angeles. Oh, okay. And so like they're outside. Then they're back in L.A. Uh, The library, uh, you know, they're in the uh, second floor reading room at the Uh Schwartzman Library, which if you're ever in New York City is incredibly lovely. It's free. They blast AC in the summer. Uh, maybe if you were Jake Young a couple of years ago, nice. you spent every afternoon there because the Wi-Fi was free and you were unemployed and desperately needed to write freelance pieces. Um, and then, the you know, when they go when the librarian goes downstairs and they're fighting, the library goes, that's that's back in L.A. Like this movie is jumping yeah, and from shot to shot all over the place it was fascinating to watch it uh,
2: it uh, it also documents landmarks that are no longer with us like the World Trade Center and the original Tavern on the Green it's a real like early 80s perfect kind of almost um, historical film in a way like it, you could just seeing all of the, the way New York was at this time is very I feel like pretty right on the money for how it probably looked and felt during that time of course you also have a lot of like gargoyles and shit added in there's a lot more gothic stuff that they added added
1: onto New York uh, in the, a lot of ways. The way that they mystified Art Deco kind of stylings mm. within the apartment was uh, interesting because, of course, New York City is known for its Art Deco architecture. Um, and uh, and in its own way, the movie kind of made itself known in New York City by kind of uh, turning the hook and ladder eight uh, building... Into its own national landmark because mm. of the movie and, you know, I think still to this day, they'll put out Very the go- cool. old Ghostbusters sign in mm-hmm. front of the I used firehouse. to work right
2: by there. It's awesome. Uh, uh, and, oddly and- enough,
1: though, the internal scenes were shot in a firehouse in L.A. Of course. But both the firehouses were built the same year. So it feels right. Of
2: course, the character Winston says in the very final line of the film, I love this town. Ackroyd says this about New York. It's the greatest city in the world, an architectural masterpiece, energy central for human behavior. I love that line, energy central for human behavior. Um, And Sigourney Weaver has this to say about New York in Ghostbusters. I think it was a love letter to New York and New Yorkers. Central Park West and Tavern on the Green and the horses in the park and the doorman saying, Someone brought a cougar to a party. That's so New York. When we come down, covered with marshmallow, and there are these crowds of New Yorkers of all types and descriptions cheering for us as a New as a New York. It was one of the most moving things I can remember. And you know, you don't really get that again until like Spider Man. Yeah. In a way, that feeling of like you know, and they kind of needed it again then with oh, spot for Spider Man. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, Do you want to write that for Dorkley? Yeah. <laughs> awesome.
2: Cool, yeah, give me that money. The movies that
1: saved New York City. Give me that money, money,
2: when I write my stuff. Actually, no, it is a lot more work for what I get. (laughs) I'll
1: I'll double your rate. Thank you
2: for my money, money. (laughs) Anyways, um, now let's move on to a lovely quote, uh, another lovely quote from Sigourney Weaver about meeting Bill Murray. I went over and I introduced myself and he said, hello, Susan. Then he picked me up and he put me over his shoulder and walked down the block with me. It was a great metaphor for what happened to me in the movie. I was just turned upside down, and I think I became a much better actress for it. I love her. I love everybody in this movie. I love her. She's so great. She's very good. And we've talked about her a lot. we talked about Alien, of course. Yeah. Um, but what a fucking phenomenal actress and what a diverse actress, this insane, tense, suspenseful horror film and then able to just like be immersed in this. I mean, obviously, she's like really the straight man, but she does it so well. She's such a good foil to Bill Murray.
1: Oh, absolutely. The, the you know, this character immediately good sees chemistry. through uh, his shenanigans. Yeah. Um uh, you know calls him a game show host it's 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 cute their 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 energy is really good in the movie
2: so in terms of the art design uh, several illustrators were hired by associate producer Michael C Gross for concept art uh, John Dequeer, de Queer de- known for his elaborate sets, was hired as a production designer. For the Proton Packs, uh, design consultant Stephen Dane went home and got foam pieces and just threw a bunch of stuff together to get the look. It was highly machined, but it had to look off the shelf, a military surplus. And I think they goddamn nailed that in this movie. Like, everything looks... Few like f- kind of crazy sci-fi, and at the same time, like totally DIY and that uh, attention you're, to you're detail is great. You're thinking of
1: the literal colander full of wires that they strap onto Rick Moranis yes. towards the end of the movie. Yes,
2: there's that. I mean, just the 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 what is it? The Ghost Mobile. What is it called? Ecto One. Ecto One. Yeah, just the way that the the car looks. It's perfect. Taking um, well, let's see. Do I have that on me? I'll find it somewhere. Uh
1: According to uh, Harold Ramis on the in the DVD commentary. Uh, The it's uh, the fully loaded proton pack with the batteries attached Mm -hmm. uh, weighed over 30 pounds uh, in scenes where they knew you could not see the back of it. They took the batteries out and in scenes where they were like getting tossed around, uh, they wore foam rubber kind of dummy proton packs. So that it wouldn't destroy these priceless uh props.
2: And PS yes, it was uh the Ecto one was a converted nineteen fifty-nine Cadillac Miller Meteor. And I think that was so smart. It's kind of a hokey car. Yeah. You know, and then they just like ambulanced it essentially it's like
1: a combination hearse ambulance yeah uh
2: 1950s so smart instead of it being some crazy like batmobile you know what i mean Mm. it's like having everything feel like that this it just gives you that feel of this is a ragtag team i love movies about ragtag teams and underdogs you know like six it's so they nail it in this with this comedy um and the siren actually on ecto one was created by sound designer richard bags and it is the snarl of a leopard cut and played backward. I didn't know that. Isn't that crazy? Why wouldn't you just use a siren? We should call him. We should. We should ask him why he didn't just use a siren. I've
1: been dead for fifty years. The movie was made thirty
2: years ago, but (laughs) I've been dead. He sounds like New York almost (laughs) a little bit.
1: I don't do voices.
2: I've been dead. famous line from richard Beggs. um so just to wrap up a little bit on the shooting uh it was a very guerrilla style shooting in fact one there's one memorable scene in rockefeller center they didn't know rockefeller center was privately owned so there's a security guard in the background running after uh bill murray uh harold ramis and dan Aykroyd, and that was actually a real security guard chasing them off of the of the lot
1: um the uh, the final scene, the rooftop confrontation with Gozer, uh, was shot and the largest set available, soundstage available uh, for, on the Columbia lot. Uh, the actual rooftop itself was suspended three stories in the air, so uh, Ivan Reitman could get like you know those cool low angles and really convey that they were high up. Uh, New York City is all one gigantic matte painting that kind of wraps around this entire giant space. And to provide the, like, the the right lights to kind of give it that realistic city look, uh, they had to rent out basically every available electric generator in Los Angeles. And they had fire marshals on set because, like, nobody trusted that this whole, like, setup wasn't just going to burst into flames.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the shoot itself, too, is all over the place because it's an improv style shoot, mm. right? Um, I love uh, uh, Rick Moranis' quote about that. These guys are all second city. The unwritten rules to make the other guy look good. And I want to fucking throw that mm. out to everybody trying... Again, P- I love that line. Just like the writing advice kind of thing we did earlier. If you are a performer, podcaster, whatever it is, think about that. Stop trying to be number one. Be the best support you can be and you're gonna look awesome and that is such a big like improv rule you know is to like not try to be mr funny guy is literally just be support the scene make the other person look good and you're gonna look amazing
1: but what if the the feeble ants around you are holding you back from your true greatness
2: there you go that's what it is right i feel i sense i get that a lot from like obviously like the stand-up stuff and everything (laughs) like the scene you know what i mean or even like doing film shoots and, mm. and getting it being like wow this guy really thinks they're hot shit and they really don't want the director to like uh, anybody else in this <laughs> scene you know what I mean and it's really obnoxious so anyways uh, Reitman uh, has this to say about directing improv actors what I learned is that I'd have to be nimble I'd set up the scene for how it had been written, lighting, blocking, and then Bill would have a brilliant idea. My job was to hold on to the brilliant script and yet work fast enough to take advantage of his brilliance. Uh, and uh, you know, famously, one one like for example, one of the improv moments when he goes to Courtney Weaver's house and he goes to the piano and he like plays at the <laughs> keys and he just turns through. he's like, they hate that. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. And that was like one of the many improvised lines that you just had to deal with bill murray you know the Murricane. you had to just fucking let him rip a little bit was it know?
1: Aykroyd or reitman who had the line that it was like a scene where it was literally um it was like dan Aykroyd, harold Ramis, rick moranis and like ivan reitman all like uh standing on set together and one of them just goes like all right so we've got four writers and three directors like this movie's gonna be fine. <laughs> like, there was never gonna be a moment where nobody had an idea on right. how to make the scene work. Right, totally. Um, oh, uh so th- okay, so this is a moment. Uh while they're filming, uh, there's a scene where they're like putting up the Ghostbuster sign. Um, and if you notice, it's like kind of shitty looking. Mm-hmm. Uh the reason is because they had to uh put up multiple signs and do multiple takes oh, wow. whenever the actual name Ghostbusters was on screen. Yes. Because Um, As we mentioned, the the phrase ghost blank was actually a pretty common trope. And turns out there had been a 1975 show called Ghostbusters, the Ghostbusters, Ghost, the Ghost Space Busters. Starring uh, Larry Storch from F Troop and a guy in a gorilla costume. That was very much of the slapstick genre. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And it was done by Filmation, which is the company that also was responsible for He-Man and a bunch of other eighties cartoon properties. Um, and the rights to the Ghostbusters was actually owned by a different studio universal pictures. Now, uh, at, at some point they were going to uh call the movie Ghost Smashers uh you know they just they just needed like to just redo all these shots right. in case they couldn't get the rights mm, to the name that sounds awful uh it reached a head though when they filmed the uh famous crowd scene where there's literally hundreds of extras shouting Ghostbusters 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 and they realized that they can't work around this and so they are in a desperate bind to get the rights from Universal. Now, it turns out that uh, the head of Universal Studios was a guy named Frank Price, the guy who greenlit the Ghostbusters for Columbia Studios because he had Columbia Pictures because uh, at the time, Columbia Pictures was owned by the Coca-Cola Corporation, Hmm. a weird side note in film history. Um, Coca-Cola technically owns the Best Picture Oscar for Gandhi, for example. Um, And uh, it was... Wild, uh, it was his wild nature, like say, green lighting an expensive action horror comedy from SNL alums that got Frank Price in trouble with the heads of Columbia and made him quit. So he just, through sheer serendipity, ended up landing at the company that owned the rights to the name Ghostbusters hmm. and he gave them immediate, uh, Permission to use the name. Amazing. I mean, it's like the ghost, like, if it wasn't for that, the ghost, Ghostbusters wouldn't be called
2: Ghostbusters. Which I just, none of the other options sound good at all, too. You know what I mean?
1: Something strange in the neighborhood. Who are you going to call? Ghost Getums. No. (laughs)
2: Well, that's a perfect segue into talking about the song Ghostbusters, written by Ray Parker Jr. Uh, He got notoriety as a member of Bohannon's house band at the legendary 20 Grand nightclub, and would go on to play guitar uh, as a guest for uh, Stevie Wonder. He was a sideman for Barry White for a while. Uh, He also did session work and wrote songs for The Carpenters, Shaka Khan, Aretha Franklin, Bill Withers, and The Temptations, to name a few. And when I say name a few, I really mean it. There were way more names on that list, but I was like, I can't keep typing names of famous musicians and singers. Um, uh, and he had a R&B group called Radio, R-A-Y-D-I-O. Um, he only had a few days to write the song, and he was daunted at the task, but he ended up catching a late-night commercial on TV that inspired him to make it into a pseudo-advertising jingle, which is such a smart idea. Um, there was also a music video that was also directed by Reitman um, and featured cameos from Chevy Chase, John Candy, Jeffrey Tambor, Every other Canadian in Canada, Al Franken, Danny DeVito, Carly Simon, and Terry Garr, among others. Uh Carly Ray Jepsen as a fetus. <laughs> as a fetus was thrown in there. They tossed her, they <laughs> tossed her in there, just flapped around for a little bit. Uh and then uh later on, actually, Huey Lewis sued Columbia Pictures, claiming the song was too similar to I Want a New Drug. I want a new drug. And they settled out of court. For
1: uh that. now You should probably mention this part of the story, which is uh, a very uh, popular thing to do in filmmaking is uh, in order to maximize efficiency, uh, a director will use what is called scratch tracks Mm. in which they will use kind of placeholder music that they don't necessarily have the rights to uh, in order to like pace out scenes. And uh, as a movie kind of moves along, uh, you know, kind of the music and the editing kind of go together. And so, a song that you know, if you're gonna put in a different song later, you still end up using the scratch, relying on the scratch track to like put in cuts and to kind of like it just it's just it's an unfortunate thing. If you ever think about why like uh, Marvel movies, for example, uh, have kind of generic music and themes, it's usually because those directors are using scratch tracks and they mm. have to work around them mm-hmm. just to fit with what like can actually match the editing. And the scratch track that was used, in place of the soon-to-be-made original song for Ghostbusters was "I Want a New Drug" by Huey ah, Lewis. I, I was about to say it. But I was waiting. But I was yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So Ray Parker literally couldn't <laughs> veer from the exact same tempo and right. like baseline. Yeah, it, true. He, it was a catch twenty-two. He was fucked.
2: So uh, we haven't really talked much about special effects. You now how I kind of said the jankiness of the movie uh, of like the look of the set and things like that, of the of the Ecto-1 and everything, like really added to it. Well, I feel like the, and he even said it in his own words, the man we're about to talk about, the special effects master that did the special effects for them. They were also purposely kind of janky the special effects, in a certain way. And I think that that also to add to this kind of, again, ridiculous comedy DIY theme they had going on through the whole film. Richard Edlund did the special effects of this movie. He was like the main man for them, at least. It was more than just him. He uh, was raised in Minnesota and later joined the U.S. Navy and afterwards went to the USC School of Cinematic Arts to pursue experimental film. There, he was hired uh, by John Dykstra as a cameraman for Industrial Light and Magic, and his first fucking movie was Star Wars. What a lucky fuck. You know what I mean? Uh, At Star Wars, he got uh, an Academy Award. He ends up working with Dykstra on other things like Battlestar Galactica. He worked on Empire... uh, Strikes Back, of course, and got another Academy Award for his ability to optically compose miniatures against a white background. And we talked about him on our Empire Strikes Back episode because we definitely went into deep detail on that. And after completing Return of the Jedi, it was 1983, and he gets a call from the guys. They're at Martha's Vineyard. They're working on it because they're like, we we need to go ahead and lock this in.
1: And Well, they had to because all the other special effects houses yeah. were already booked. Yeah. They they had this narrow time frame to get their special effects blockbuster out and all the late industrial line magic and other firms uh, we're working on other movies, which again, if I had my internet, I would bring up the notes. But stuff like uh, Temple of Doom, like all these other '80s blockbusters, were already being made, and so the available talent was actually very uh, uh sparse.
2: So they actually reached out to him, and with Frank Price, helped him set up his own special effects company, Boss Films. And with that, he was able to do his first project, which was Ghostbusters. They needed over 200 special effects shots. Edlin said, we had three different studios going at once. I had a motorcycle going back and forth from one to the other. Some effects had to be done in one shot, which wasn't normally done. That's insane. For a big movie like this, having one shot to do it. I mean, you definitely get that in like uh, independent films and stuff, but, but for a giant movie like this, Reitman asked to add 100 shots, said Edlin, with only two months left. I met him in the parking lot with my samurai sword. (laughs) <laughs> uh, Reitman cut 50 of those shots
1: what is it with <laughs> nerds and making statements with swords I know right he better I'm fucking with this
2: sword I feel like his this is the eighth I showed
1: up with a sword story we've done on this show <laughs>
2: um, so they had a few different Stay puffed Marshmallow Man shoots go up in flames with the actor inside
1: of it oh yeah I mean, how do you think they got that shot of the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man inflamed, flames <laughs> moving? And um,
2: so that was crazy. Uh, they also, uh, they used a shitload of shaving cream for that, for the stuff at the end there with the marshmallow, that's that's oh, actually shaving cream.
1: Uh famously, uh, in order to get that much yes. shaving cream on short notice, they had to resort to using mentholated uh, menthol shaving cream, and thus several of the actors and extras had uh, severe skin burns and like allergic reactions because you know it's a hundred pounds of menthol dropped oh, on your head. Oh my
2: god, what a nightmare! So they they somehow get this movie made in a year. Um, they did like a, apparently they did some sort of a executive screening or something, some the, sort of a talks industry about this screening. that was a nightmare that that and no one like everybody like hated it and like we're literally going up to him and being like, "Well, man, you tried your best," you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like being real dicks. What were you gonna say? What the, the uh, story here?
1: Oh, Reitman talks about another screening on the Columbia lot that had like a test audience of two hundred uh-huh. people, and even with hundreds of missing effect shots the crowd was, was totally into it um he describes how uh one effect that they did have ready in time was when the librarian ghost turns into that big spooky monster and the combination of horror and screaming and delighted laughter like gave him the confidence to know that like they had done it like yeah. they had nailed the tone that they were going for.
2: The film grosses $13.6 million on opening weekend and $221 million by the year's end, making it the highest grossing comedy of all time at that time. I believe it gets beaten by a Beverly Hills cop, which came out like I think a year later. But still, Judd Apatow had this to say, I love this quote to kind of bring us to where what it was like. You never heard people laugh like they did when they were watching Ghostbusters in a packed theater. It was like a rock concert. There was a line down the block. Rick Moranis said it went through three seasons the entire summer. Then every kid was dressed as a Ghostbuster for Halloween, and it dominated the Christmas gift season. It just did far better than anyone expected. It kind of reminds me of Star Wars, and and in a big way, too, because you have a logo. You've got, like, it's a new thing that people didn't know they wanted.
1: Charismatic actors at the height of their power. Big summer release. And it's just a frenzy. And uh, just, it was everywhere. updating an old kind of like black and white era genre for a new uh, generation.
2: There's just so many iconic people in the cat. Just the, the suits, the proton packs, Slimer. It was just so, there were just so many things for kids to hang on to and love and want to dress up as and want to play with toys uh, that resembled it. The Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, obviously just, it was perfect. It was one of those perfect things for adults, for kids for everyone to enjoy it is such an enjoyable film because it just works on so many different levels even an
1: androgynous it, yugoslavian fashion model dressed yes. up as a sumerian god yes, you know for, Gozer. for the for the curious people in the in the in the in the audience really cool. i have no understanding of modern sexuality
2: to <laughs> there's touching moments there's moments of sincerity there it's it's also ridiculous and silly It just works on cats so and dogs many levels. living together so many levels <laughs> Cats and dogs living together. Um, It's just so funny and great. And I love it. I'm so happy this, this was donated for because like I was just no brainer. Yeah, let's please. I love it. Um, and the film, uh, is largely, uh, seen as helping to break down the barrier between TV actors and film actors, which was much more, had much more of a disparity back then. If you were on TV, you were on TV, you didn't do movies and vice versa. And it was SNL and this. Now everybody wants an SNL performer in their movie Mm. or writer involved or whatever. It really broke that down in a huge way, which is interesting. You don't even think about that. Kind of like you don't think about like... People, desp- like, really kind of throwing shade at New York or whatever. And, and it, you know what I mean? And like, bringing people back or whatever. Like, I'm gonna write for that article that I will make a lot of money on.
1: The movies that saved New York. <laughs> um, now, here's the thing what is Ghostbusters about? Okay.
2: okay now we're gonna we're gonna close it out on a downer
1: it's I'm um, no 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 not a downer i'm saying this is really what makes it exceptional because this movie violates a ton of screenwriting uh-huh. rules
2: right it does and, it, and i was telling jake and i were talking as we were walking up to the studio because we are friends in real life and we do enjoy each other's company okay so we were communicating with each other beforehand and we were like um you know, it, it, it fe- structurally, it feels like a traditional Hollywood film. But if you look at it, it's not, right? Right. There's not, like, a, a, a true antagonist in like, a true sense. Like, so Gozer, right? I'm going to make the argument. Jake, I'm an idiot.
1: What? No, no. Gozer Holden, my friend. is the main true antagonist of the movie, Jake. But, like, Gozer's whole plan just kind of, like, moves along without a hitch until the Ghostbusters just show up and cross the streams and then it's all over. Yeah. Uh, all the characters, like, uh, they don't really have arcs except maybe Venkman who goes from being a likable asshole to a likable asshole in a steady relationship. Ghost, maybe.
2: Ghost Blowjob kind of changes Aykroyd a little
1: bit. That's That was a dream sequence. It doesn't even happen. Okay. Uh, Dan Aykroyd starts as this sincere puppy dog who just, like, cares about uh, science and then, ends the movie. Like, here's it, like uh He ends
2: more confidently. He starts off kind of shy and ends more confidently.
1: No, he's like a puppy dog who's like, I wanted the marshmallow man to save us, but it was wrong. Uh, Like, okay, (laughs) so like they don't set up that uh, you know, Dan Aykroyd has like this thing with his childhood, and then like when the so that when the marshmallow man shows up, it's like a big like twist. Uh Egon's thing where it's like don't cross the streams, like, it's just like a weird ancillary thing. It's not like he talks about how, like, you know, Egon doesn't, like, really loosen up except maybe kind of towards the end, like, Janine gives him, like, a hug. Um, right. Like, uh, Remus actually said that I want to, like, his one acting choice was he wasn't going to smile throughout the movie. <laughs> um, like, ghosts are just kind of, like, the key master and the gatekeeper yeah. uh, just kind of, like, go through their transformation. Uh-huh. Uh, the Ghostbusters are clueless. They don't know how to stop it. the uh, Walter Peck kind of, like, forms a temporary... Uh, like, setback, but then, like, that doesn't really yeah. do much because, like, it's implied that shutting down the containment unit, like, helps Gozer, but, like, all they needed was the key master and the gatekeeper, right?
2: Already. Yeah, um, totally.
1: Like, it all kind of just, it's, you know, they're just, it's just this universe, these fun characters, these incredibly charismatic actors just getting to, like, strut their stuff. Even the physical comedy isn't, like, that crazy. Like, right. uh, Venkman gets lined, but most of the jokes are just, like... Solid zingers delivered by these good joke writers, right? So like all this and uh, people have said that it's about like religion versus science because the fact that like the task of killing a uh, pre-Christian God uh, falls on these exterminators and like using the equipment that they had. Uh, Some say it's like about humanism. Uh, Other people say it's about faith, but then like nobody really has a crisis of faith. They believe in all this stuff and they just go ahead and do their jobs. Uh, it's it's just a it's it's the fact that it works is kind of amazing to me, and I, I just wanted to comment on that before we like wrap up the episode. If you really do watch it with that like cynical, and like, that's the
2: story of the. I mean, I think that's our hook, right? That's our story, right? Is it really is like the movie that never should have been, and and is just this massive, amazing success? Yeah, yeah, it's like it, sh- and and I love those stories where it just shouldn't it it shouldn't. There's nothing about it that sells. And yet it is, again, one of, I think, one of the most rewatchable, enjoyable films out there. Now, if you you
1: want real character development and interesting lore building, Ah. you should probably check out a little cartoon called (laughs) The Real Ghostbusters, but that'll have to wait. Till next, next week. week.
2: Thank you so much, everybody, for joining us. Uh, thank you again, Aaron, for uh, your patronage and happy anniversary to you and your lady. Uh, we hope your love lasts and lives on and um, that you find um, more love with like some a baby or something as well. Uh, you can join us on uh, Patreon if you want to support us more five bucks a month you get a week of uh, every week you get a bonus episode where we talk about different things I'm going to talk about how I went to next level and won a set in uh, Street Fighter uh, yesterday which is amazing and things like that we bring in people to do interviews we do monthly roundups where we talk about all the video games and comic books and TV and shit that we're watching it's a lot of fun it's just five dollars and I want to thank we had a rash of new patrons the other day I don't know what was in the water that day but I just want to just thank you guys who are who are patronizing us. It is incredible. Thank you for your support. Uh, also. Uh, twitch.tv forward slash holdnatorsho if you'd like to see my stream uh, i would i would love to have you come on i'd love it when people come on i uh, i get it now almost daily i'll have at least one person come on and just be like hey man love was in the bruiser love the and it is it makes me feel amazing so if you want to come check out what i do outside of this i would love to see you and
1: i always appreciate the kind words guys jake i've watched many hours of bad twitch yes, you streaming have. And, oh, I think you say And me. let me say that you are genuinely funny and watchable, which is oh, rare. Oh, thank you so much. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at bestjakeyoung and uh check out the stuff I do for dorkly.com along with uh, the my shenanigans on the Drawfee channel. Uh I oh, God, I want to announce the thing, but I can't announce uh, it yet. Otherwise, I'll be in legal trouble.
2: Alright. That's a good that's it. That's a wrap. Have a good one, guys. Take care.